Hello, hello, and welcome to Fine Art Podcast, where the podcast is fine, but the art is fine. My name is Keegan Shiner, and today is a momentous occasion because this is episode two, which means we have literally increased the number of episodes of the Fine Art Podcast by 100%. And that's a milestone I don't know if we'll ever reach again in a single week. Um, it might get more difficult to, especially if we're exponentially increasing these episodes. Uh, that's going to that's gonna turn into a lot of work. I, I don't think I'm up for that. So my guest today is Chantal Zachary. She is a, well, if you asked me what Chantal does, I would say she makes artist books. But the truth is, she makes lots of things. She's an interdisciplinary artist. Uh, but she's, maybe she's known for her artist books, might be something that uh, I could truthfully say. Um, but she also, she makes posters, she makes postcards, she's made banners, she's made plates, and they're all fantastic. Uh, they all fall into like a Venn diagram circle like all of these things are inside a circle called socially engaged art Chantal really reacts to the world around her including her newest project which is called Drop Dead Gorgeous it's on her website it's a book about COVID-19 she went on uh, newspapers and magazine sites and found all these very beautiful graphic design pictures of what the virus might look like and she's made a really in my opinion, hilarious book about the aesthetics of this COVID-19 and all these pictures are just really beautiful and it's such a deadly disease. Uh, it's really something to check out. It's called Drop Dead Gorgeous. It's on her website, which is thecorner.net. Um, and you can find her other books on there. Uh, I think they're also for sale. And so if you finish this episode and you're looking for it, that again is thecorner.net. Well, without further ado, because I, I don't want these to be too long, uh, I'd like to bring in Chantal, but since I pre-recorded the interview, I can't do that. So what I'm going to do is just intro this this re, uh, this interview a little bit. And um, she does have a bird, and I think the bird thought I was interviewing it because the bird talked quite a bit. The bird was like, hey, this is my inside the actor's studio moment. I'm a bird. And Chantal was like, I am on Keegan's podcast and I am answering questions. So uh, so that is my uh, impression of the following episode. <laughs> uh, anyway, without further ado, here is Chantal. Is that there your bird? A... Do you have a bird? Oh my God, that's really far. I can't believe you can, I can barely hear it. Oh yeah? No, I hear it really yeah. clearly. It, he is upstairs and across. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. He's <laughs> in the studio. So I'm in the dining room right now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we're looking for a home for a bird, for our bird. Oh yeah. You're not keeping the bird. What's the bird's name? Sina. Sina. <laughs> <laughs> as in the <laughs> hunger games um oh, yeah, funny. <laughs> the bird had another partner because these birds do really well with partners yeah and then a couple of months ago actually right during the first week of the lockdown um mm -hmm. the quarantine our other bird died of illness oh, no. oh. not old age but just um you know genetic illness and bird, then bird flu or something <laughs> no, not bird flu. <laughs> yeah, somehow we never got to buy another one. What kind of bird is it? Is parakeet. it a parakeet? It's a little oh. Parakeet. oh yeah, like oh, okay, yeah. I, I lived with them. They're they're loud birds. Yeah, they're easy to take care of actually. But I think you know it was for Layla, and she's leaving the house next year. So Mike and I don't need a bird. <laughs> Although you, you're gonna have an empty nest, so maybe yeah. uh, maybe you do need a bird. Just no, to, no. <laughs> I mean, the good thing about the bird is that you can leave them for three days with enough food and oh, wow. come back. So you don't have to like worry if you go on travel. Um, Not, yeah. 
but you know every time we had to go to turkey we had to like find a place or one time he went to the bird hotel and that was a lot of money that was like 10 bucks a day <laughs> oh wow yeah so you grew up in turkey is that mm -hmm. correct is um okay did you so have we started now we, oh yeah we we started oh. a while ago <laughs> oh okay okay but you're going to edit this stuff right <laughs> you do you want an official start we can do an official start yes, thanks so much for coming start. on the show <laughs> well thanks for inviting me um you grew up in turkey did you swim in the black sea is that a place that you go to the beach or no no, no. i'm i'm from the aegean coast um, okay so that's um west of turkey the west coast and i grew up in a city called izmir so that's um like if you draw a straight line from athens across the aegean that's where okay. izmir is oh cool so it's south of istanbul i never really swam in the black sea i think but i part of my family is also in istanbul so i grew up also going back and forth between izmir and istanbul but i swam there in the marmara sea which is like a small sea inner sea so that's like an inlet then or? no izmir is on on the water yeah it's yeah it's connected to the the ocean yeah we don't have an ocean we call it the sea there the sea okay yeah the but sea is calm but overall it becomes connected to the mediterranean but the mediterranean is still a sea i'm learning still, a lot about seas right now <laughs> yeah i still don't call here the water uh, ocean i have a hard time saying we went to the ocean i always say we went to the sea oh even in boston well i should say ocean because yeah it's the ocean but, but the, isn't ocean the mediterranean is connected to the atlantic and I yeah but small passes Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, the ocean is very different because you have like the water really comes and goes in the ocean. And then there's waves. Even if there, there is no winds, you can have waves in the ocean. Okay. Whereas in the sea, it's all dependent on waves. Because I'm from the Midwest and we just have lakes. And so <laughs> seas and oceans are just foreign concepts to me, basically. Yeah, I don't claim to know the difference either. <laughs> Um, what were your parents like? Well, so I was born in 68. Um, my parents were young in the 60s, but they were not hippies. I mean, I don't even know if there were hippies in Turkey at the time. Um, the economy in Turkey was really closed. So um, okay. Turkey was a closed society in the sense that if a movie came out in the US or in England or in France, it would take about two to three years to show it in, in Turkey. You know, things moved really slowly. My dad was really hard worker. What did he do? He had a tourism agency. Um, okay. Well, so I, I'm a Levantine Turk. Um, so ethnically, we're not Turks. We're a small minority of Christian Turks. Um, okay. So we've been in the Ottoman Empire for nine, ten generations, you know, a really, really long time. And typically, these are the Europeans that came in because business was better in the European, in, in the Ottoman Empire. So it was kind of like migrating to America, say, in 1850. Some of them were engineers, some of them were just uh, looking for excitement, uh, adventure, and some of them opened shops. So like in Istanbul, for example, or in Izmir, where there were a lot of Levantines and a lot of minorities in general, most of the merchants were Greeks, Levantines, Armenians, Jews, you know, it was okay. the, the minorities that had the shops. And then the Ottomans owned land. Um, I see. And then the poor Ottomans, the villagers, worked the land. So the Ottomans were not really merchants. So my family were not merchants. There was a group of them that were engineers and they came to the Ottoman Empire as engineers, like railroad engineers. Oh, cool. And then there were a few who came in and opened shops. So for example, like one of my grandfather, you didn't ask me that, you asked me about my parents, oh, but I thought it would be. <laughs> you gotta tell me. <laughs> one of my grandfathers, one of my great grandfathers has had a hat shop in Istanbul. So oh, a hat shop. Like, like he, he, made the, he made the hats? Yeah, or oh, import cool. hats from Europe, you know. So oh, cool. Stuff like that, <laughs> you know, toy shops. There you was still have guy. any hats in your family? No, no. the hats didn't was, survive. No, that was my great-grandfather. Oh, okay. um, 
So a lot of these Levantines actually lost their businesses. The Levantines were not very, very wealthy. The Jews and the Armenians had bigger businesses and they were more wealthy. Okay. So in a way, there was more racial tension towards them than the Levantines. But a lot of them lost their properties and their houses during World War One, when the British left the Ottoman Empire, for example, the Turkish Revolution took their houses and their lands. But the Levantines never had a lot of wealth. Um, what they had was the advantage of knowing a lot of languages. So for oh. example, at home, we used to speak French, but my grandparents' generation would speak Greek, Italian, uh, oh, everything. French, uh, English. Um, wow. So there was, we knew, like as a community, we knew a lot of the foreign languages and that was really useful in modern Turkey because then you could do business with Europe. And yeah. so my dad did not even graduate from high school. He was a high school dropout. He hated high school because he went to, uh, oh, I don't know if that should be public. Um, I don't know if my dad's <laughs> family, but he did not like being in the preschools. He was... You know, they were very religious. They were not conservative religious, but they were fairly religious because you're a religious minority, you know, that's your oh, yeah. But he hated going to the priest school, so he dropped out. And then because these Levantine kids knew languages, they would always get jobs as interpreters or tour operators or at the fairs. Yeah. Um, you know. so, so that's kind a, of yeah. how we started. Resourceful. Cool. And, and what about yeah. your mom? Uh, well, my mom uh, lost her father really young. She was 14 when her father died of a heart attack. And at the time, you know, that was like a big deal. It means that your family would have no money after that. And my grandmother started teaching French lessons privately, and that's how she made a little money. And then my uncle went to work. And so my mom was a lot more sheltered, even though she grew up in Istanbul. She was in the big city. Oh. My dad was in Izmir in a smaller city. And she finished high school and then um, w with the sisters. So she, she went to a religious high school. And then they hired her to be the kindergarten teacher. And so oh, she cool. worked a couple of years with that. But then... After she met my father, she didn't work anymore. You know, okay. this was very typical when I was growing up. The father would have a job and that was enough money. And it wasn't like an amazing job, but it was just enough money. Yeah. And then the mother would stay home. Um, so my dad started, first he was working for somebody else. And then yeah. midlife, really in his 40s, he started his own business. But he was never like 100% the owner of the entire business. But he was a very creative guy. He would just... Uh, you know, he was one of the first tour operators that took tourists into Cappadocia. Do you know that part of Turkey? No. Um, What's that? <laughs> it looks like Bryce Canyon. Um, okay. It has these weird rock formations. And so he would take people there in buses from Ankara, from the capital. And then one time he had this idea that he would get all the carpets merchants to put carpets on the grass. And then uh, <laughs> he built a stage for the Ankara government ballet troupe to come and dance at sunset. You know, like oh, he wow. would stage amazing performances. He was a really creative guy. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, in, in the 70s and in the 80s, you could do stuff like that in Turkey because it was about, you know, you know this guy who works in the tourism ministry and can he get you a special pass? And so he, would, he was very outgoing. He was mm -hmm. very social. And even though he was 11, he had opened up out of the community. You know, I mean, my dad's generation was probably the first generation that opened outside of this minority. I always say like my grandmother who was born and raised in Turkey mm -hmm. did not know Turkish very well. You know, she had like my maternal grandmother, she was speaking with an accent. Oh, um, I see. Yeah, so it was sort of a closed community. Very closed, yeah. very, very closed, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's what my parents were like. They, they were really the first generation to open up, but they were also aware that they were still considered as a minority. Do you have siblings? I do, but uh, they came in a lot later. So I grew up as an only <laughs> child until I was 10. Oh, my brother okay. was born when I was 10 and my sister when I was 12. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I wasn't that close. I mean, I think we were very loving, but I wasn't that close to them 
because literally when my sister, when I started college and I left for the States, my sister had just started kindergarten. Oh yeah. So not, not in the same age range at all. No, no. But then when I lived in Chicago, um, they came and visited me and they stayed with me for a month. You know, I was, I was 25 and then they were 15 and 13. And so, Mm -hmm. And and now we're really close because both my parents passed away. So now we're pretty close. Are they still in Turkey? No, um, my sister is here. Well, they both came to the U.S. to study. My brother did not like the U.S. at all. Culturally, it was just not the right match for him. And uh, he went back to Turkey uh, and he got a job there. But then he was appointed because he knows French. He was appointed to be the director of the French office. Oh, cool. So now he lives in France. My sister actually lives a couple of blocks away from me, about 10 blocks away. She stayed here. So you settled in Boston. Yeah. Uh, I I was in Chicago before this. What took you to Chicago? You know, I had a cousin in Chicago and I had a cousin in Carbondale studying. My dad said uh, that, uh, you know, he would finance um, my education in the States and I could go. And he said, but you should stay with one of your cousins. So oh, I applied okay. <laughs> to only two schools, Southern Carbondale University, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and the Arts Institute in Chicago. And wow. uh, they both accepted me. And then I thought, well, where do I want to go to a small town or a big town? And, yeah. you know, it was really um, not like today where you go on school tours and yeah, check out yeah. campuses. I had never been to the U.S. before. So you knew already that you wanted to be an artist or were you applying to the art school specifically? I was actually really good in math (laughs) and science. (laughs) Um, I was good in Turkish literature as well. I was, my strength was really history. I was always very interested in history. So Ottoman history, I knew it, you know, um, back to front. Um, Interesting. So I was really plugged into the Turkish culture, but I did want to, so I, I would have been very happy staying in Turkey, Yeah. but I, I did want to leave the house and I did want to go someplace. And uh, I think I was interested in advertisement. So, you know, 1980s, I graduated in 86 from high school. Okay. And that's the time when Turkey opened up economically to the outer world and the economy of Turkey became embedded into the world economy in 82 or 83, I think, after the Mm -hmm. 80s coup. And so that's when you started seeing a lot of advertisement and a lot of, you know, luscious pictures around. I got really interested in that. And in my mind, I wanted to study advertisement. That's why I have a lot of empathy to students who come to art school and says, I want to be in advertisement. Yeah. (laughs) I embrace them because I, I can see myself in them. It's, I don't think I knew exactly what an artist was. But then you ended up at like the premier art school in, in the United States. Uh, what, Who knew? What, what was the move like? Was it a hard transition or was it um, easy? Did you know English uh, in Turkey? I'm guessing. I knew English because in high school I learned English. Okay. I was really good in English because I already knew French. So English oh. was easy. And, and, you know, I thought I had also a really good accent because <laughs> it was close to French. And, you know, Turkish is very different. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of Turks have a hard time sometimes pronouncing English words. For me, they came in very easily because they were so similar. Oh. So I came in here with a lot of confidence. And I had no clue that I had an accent and I had no clue that I didn't know English that well. Oh, no. I, I did not get the jokes. I had no clue what people were talking about. You know? But I was really cocky when I arrived. I felt like, I can do this. This is a piece of cake. I think the move was also really hard because my dad at the time had the representation of Olympic Airlines, you know, oh. the Greek airline company. Yeah. And so he was able to get me a free ticket. But, um, you know, it, it's a long story, but they really didn't know if I could get on this plane or not because you have to be on the waiting list. And so here I am with like two giant suitcases from <laughs> Izmir to Istanbul. I flew in the cockpit because the plane was full and they put me there. <laughs> and um, and then from Athens to New York, I was flying to New York because that was the free ticket. 
Oh. I was on a waiting list until the last minute I didn't know. And then I arrived in New York, you know, I wasn't even 18. And um, my dad had said, well, you'll go from LaGuardia or from JFK to LaGuardia. It's like going from the international airport to the domestic airport. You'll just take a bus. And I <laughs> see this bus goes into this road in the highway at night. Oh, I was no. panicked. I thought I got lost. That's it. I got lost. This is, you know, pre-cell phones. and Oh, yeah. Uh, also, my dad had given me $10,000. This was my yearly budget. $7,000 was my um, school tuition. Mm -hmm. But um, it was illegal to take out foreign currency outside of Turkey. So he actually was doing something illegal giving me. And he, <laughs> like, he wasn't wealthy at the time at all. So that $10,000 yeah. was a big effort for him. I had money in my bra, in my underwear, oh my in, in my socks. <laughs> it was like... A real, you know, he smuggled currency move. into the country. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so the move was hard, I think. But I, I was, um, you know, at that age, I don't think you realize what's happening. You just go with it. You, you're stoic. Yeah. You just, uh, you kind of say you can deal with this and you put up with this. Years later, I thought, how did they do that? You know? <laughs> well, your dad made a handshake deal to get you on a flight. <laughs> Yeah. And fly in the cockpit. Oh, my God. I think they also saw me as the older kid in the family, because that's not how they did it for my brother and my sister. You know, for mm -hmm. them, they were like, oh, how is she? Is she okay? You know, does oh, she yeah. feel lonely? <laughs> and also, when I came, you couldn't even call back um, because telephone calls were so expensive. Right. I would call maybe once every two months or once every three months. Do you um, send letters? Is that, yeah. 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 Or cassette tapes. I would record cassette tapes and send back. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Did they send them back to you? Yeah. Cassette tapes? Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's cool. I, have, I still have a cassette tape with my grandmother talking. On oh, the cool. Tape. Oh, that's so neat. It is kind of nice. Um, when you got to Chicago and you started doing art school, it wasn't very long until you got into graphic art. No, right from the beginning, I started taking um, classes uh, at Chicago. It was called the Visual Communications Department. Okay. And that's also an interesting terminology. You know, earlier we were talking about these titles, where they come from. Um, visual communication was really a word that was used in the 60s. So graphic design was the more commercial name, but I visual see. communication was the more intellectual name, right? So... Um, the Art Institute in Chicago, you know, named the department like that. It, it, and it was funded by Hugh Hefner. Um, he was a big who, Chicagoite, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lots of money, donor, donor to the arts with a big art collection. So then I took classes in visual communication and then art and technology. I was really interested in technology. And that was and, like right when the, when the first Macs were coming out with with graphic design programs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So fall 1986, I took my first Macintosh class. And uh, it was on a 512, um, you oh, know, wow. tiny little Mac. And uh, it was Mac paint. It was black pixels and white <laughs> pixels. And you would just go and turn things on. And then um, we did have, I worked with a grad student, actually, who was pretty experimental. Uh, he was my teacher. I forgot now his name. I know of his name. I just have to think about it. But he had hooked up a video camera to a computer, you know, a black and white video camera. Yeah. And so we could digitize our faces if we wanted to. Oh, cool. And then he had put in a red, green, and blue filter in front of the camera. So if you stood really still with the red filter and made a picture of yourself, then with the blue filter and the yellow filter, uh, red, green, and blue, I'm sorry. And that yellow, green, um, you could overlay all these images and get a color image of yourself. Oh, neat. But you had to make sure not to move at all so that it would, you know, so we would do color separation, you know. Oh, cool. That's yeah. why some of the stuff like makes sense to me. And some of the freshmen that come in and have learned, you know, photo editing on an iPhone, yeah, they may not fully understand what color balancing is. But I physically, saw what that meant yeah. yeah and now it's all just ai yeah done for you yep how did you get interested in artist books because it, it seems like you started that pretty 
pretty quick into your um no that came in in grad school uh, okay. i started making books in in grad school because i had design skills and i wanted to make art you know and so when you have these design skills um there was no terminology for social practice at the time <laughs> you know okay. i would do a lot of posters for the streets a lot of flyers for the streets but then really if you wanted to do a bigger project the most complex project as a designer you can do i think is a book you yeah. know on, on paper at least i mean you could do websites that are but then i got into web design as well and i did you know, web art, uh, narratives on the web, and those are multiple page documents as well. Oh, oh yeah. So um, I think that's kind of how I went into artist books is that I love typography. I, I wanted to use my typography skills and mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of commercial projects. So I, I was making actually a good salary freelancing, but my own work, uh, I wanted to use typography and it, it made sense to make books. But I also liked the idea of a narrative and storytelling yeah and so books made sense for that so your first book was bill a dime novel and actually could, <laughs> could you tell me about it <laughs> yeah uh, that was my graduate thesis work um but my first book really was time magazine it was called how to read time magazine and i took <laughs> this one article um of David Souter's, uh, the judge, Judge Souter's um, uh, appointment, and there was a one-page article in Time magazine, and I decoded it all visually, you know. Oh, cool. Why this photograph? Why not that photograph? And it became an artist book in the sense that every page, I would change one element of the design, and then you would see how the article would look completely different. Like oh, I would cool. Change, I would write the same headline with a different font or I would keep everything the same, but I would change the picture of Souter, or I would keep everything the same, but I would design the article differently. Oh, and nice. so that was kind of an exercise in kind of like a Roland Barthes. Now I give that to my students, the Panzani ads, you know, is mm -hmm. decode the connotations uh, in an image and denotations in an image. So yeah. I was really kind of doing that. And that led me into wanting to design more books. So Bill, a dime novel, is I was really, really interested in American culture and the idea of the cowboy as, you know, the symbol of this idyllic culture. You know, before I came to the US, I had not realized there were poor people in the US, you know, I had not realized that, um, you know, like, I mean, this is very superficial, of course, but um, I would watch Dallas on TV. So I knew okay. of Dallas, but um, I had a friend in Turkey who said, oh, you'll see every house in America has a uh, food, food disposal. You know? So <laughs> I was sharing this apartment with two other roommates. And my first day, I kept looking for where the button for the food disposal is. Because <laughs> you know? I thought every house has it. And then, of oh, course, yeah. I go out in Chicago. And one of the first things I see in the street was a giant rat. Oh, yeah. And I ran back to the apartment thinking, <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> so then I started using the symbol of the cowboy as really a symbol of this American heroism. And then I was very interested in... American mythology. And, you know, when I was in high school, I was interested in Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology. Yeah. I, I had read all that or Gilgamesh, Mesopotamian mm -hmm. mythology. And so Bill, a dime novel is really kind of weaving the two together is having the American mythological text along with the um, text that I grew up with, the stories I grew up with. What is the American mythology? I'm, I'm wondering. I know well, that the okay. cowboys are in like cigarette ads and like basically yeah. everything revolved around cowboys for a really long time. But uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to know what American mythology is. Right. So I, I'm not telling you half of the story, actually. Okay. The other half <laughs> is that I was reading Joseph Campbell and I was reading okay. a lot of the people who were writing about mythology at the time. Yeah. And the other thing that I'm not telling you is that I was in grad school in 1990 to 1992 and that was during the gulf war okay and so I thinking a lot about heroism and and bush was the first bush was president 
So when you look at the images in Bill, a dime novel, you see uh, the cowboy in these very apocalyptic places like uh, the Iraqi oil fields that are burning. Um, oh, I see. Okay. And these were all computer collages. This is pre-Photoshop. Photoshop was not out yet, or at least we didn't have it at school. I was doing this all on the PC Lumina board. And, you know, they're very low resolution so images, but they're just collapsed. manual switches that you had to uh, <laughs> flip the gears. <laughs> no, no, actually, it was pretty sophisticated. It was a lot more sophisticated than the first version of Photoshop. Okay. Because you already had layers and you could mix layers. And that's how what you would do with your paintbrush. You would pull something to the front and push others to the back and oh, okay. mix images that way. But not a lot of pixels. I think it was like 798 or something like that. Oh, wow. Remember. Then you, you met your husband. Is yeah. that, yeah, right around then? Um, after grad school. I, um, okay. I always make a point to say that because at the time, so many photographers <laughs> were dating grad students. That I want to say that he wasn't around when I was in grad school. Oh, that's good. He, he came in a year after I started teaching. He was uh, replacing a sabbatical leave. And I had just started teaching part-time. Okay. Because, you see, my generation, a lot of our grad students were hired to teach because the faculty didn't know computer technology. We were the ones who were playing in grad school with computer technology. Oh, cool. So um, it was really easy for me to get a teaching job. Um, you know, many of us got our first teaching jobs just teaching Photoshop. And I would say, sure, I can teach it. And I didn't exactly know Photoshop, but then I knew this other software and I, you it know, was similar. I, yeah. It, yeah. And then the software were really simple at the time. Um, so when Mike came in, he was supposed to teach a photo class that included Photoshop. And they said, well, why don't you show him around since you know the lab? Because, you know, I was the one who had spent the most time in the lab. And then you two started, well, dating, but also collaborating. Is that right yeah, around that? So we didn't start dating immediately, but as soon as we started dating, we were collaborating. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a big part of our relationship was that we were thinking similarly about art and art making. When he first met me, he did dismiss me. Oh, you do commercial art. You know? <laughs> And I always like to remind him that. Oh, that's funny. Um, uh, so you, your first book with him was State of Ada. Um, is that, is that no, correct? Actually, the, the first book we did was The Turk and the Jew. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And that was that's a, a little, it's a tiny little book. Um, but actually, it's a, it wasn't a book. It was a website. Oh. And so after his sabbatical replacement, he moved to Washington State. He got a job close to the Idaho border in Pullman. Mm -hmm. And so we were in a long distance relationship and there wasn't Zoom or Skype. So we would communicate on the internet and then we thought it would be interesting to document that. And so we started building a website, you know, together, uh, okay. literally long distance. Like he would post a page and I would post a response or I would post a page and he would post a response. And then the two pages would be parallel to each other in separate. Oh, okay. Windows, in in know? the old like iframe, like where the yeah. frame, iframe was yeah. an actual, like you could see the ridge of the frame. And, and we would do all this with HTML coding. HTML. Yep. And it was all basically text based and mm -hmm like right. rudimentary pictures that took a long time to download <laughs> when you yeah. when you did post them they would take a long time right but we would do little animation gif animations and sound oh cool, oh, cool. um you know it was a lot of fun and it was very experimental and it was really about communication yeah and it was also a love story you know it had romantic aspects to it but really ultimately i wanted to design a book because <laughs> you know I, I i like the possibilities of book design better like yeah the typography was better you know like you couldn't do typography on the internet and that oh, right. get on my nerves or you couldn't really control everything you know the way no, you wanted. no. and mike was much more open-ended he would say oh this element landed on this side of the page isn't that interesting you know <laughs> whereas i would be like no i want this to be exactly here exactly. it doesn't go there the design the designer and you couldn't handle you know yeah 
yeah. bugs yeah. in the code. Well, that's why we complemented each other so well, is that he really was much more open-ended and, you know, he was looking at everything as a photograph, whereas I wanted to design and I wanted to construct. Is that website still up? It was up until uh, a long time. Um, and then somebody at the SMFA took the entire SMFA site down about 10 years ago oh. and it crashed. And I have a backup, but for it to be up now, I have to recode a lot of things. And I don't even know if I could, I would have to hire a coder. Oh, but I, I do have stills. Uh, I have stills of it. Oh, cool. Okay. And around that time, were you also working on web affairs or did that come later? No. So that was much later. Actually, what happened was I wanted us to go to Turkey and I wanted us to kind of hang out in Turkey in a relaxed way, you know, not for like five vacation. days or 10 days. Yeah. Not vacation, but I wanted us to be able to travel and look at things and photograph things. And so oh, cool. then we thought we should apply for a Fulbright. Uh, fellowship and uh, we did uh, under Mike's name because um, I was not American at the time and then I told my parents I said you know I'm bringing him over you'll get to meet him and my dad who was really the sweetest man on earth he said not under my roof <laughs> not, not unless you get married so, yeah. so two weeks later I called and I said we got married <laughs> <laughs> and he hadn't really realized how easy it was to get married in America. Oh, but also, um, I had gotten caught uh, working illegally. And, um, oh. you know, I was doing some freelance work. And it was the University of Chicago. They called me and they said, it looks like you're not really legally working here. And I don't know if we can pay you for this work you did for us. And oh, wow. I immediately said, but I have an American boyfriend. Do you think you can pay him? <laughs> Literally, like I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> and she said, "Sure, what's his name? We'll send him the check." And they paid Mike. So oh, that's were... very nice. <laughs> Things that would never happen today. No, definitely not. But um, you'd be on a plane, so probably. There were a lot of good reasons to get married, and we got married. <laughs> oh, no. great. Um, but we weren't living together. He was still in uh, Washington State. Anyway, we, we went to Turkey on a Fulbright. I, I mean, we were trying to figure out what would be that we would apply with. And I told Mike, I said, you know, when you go to Turkey, you're going to see there is like pictures of the leader everywhere. And I think it would be really cool for us to document that and to kind of like do a project about that. And he really got into it. Um, you know, he had never been to Turkey. He doesn't know Turkish. And we ended up spending four months there. Um, oh, wow. Partially, yeah, partially living with my parents, with my aunts, with, you know, all sorts of relatives. But then my dad had like an old car that belonged to the office and he was ready to sell it. But then because we were coming, he gave us a car. Yeah. And then we traveled around the country with the car. Oh, cool. And so it was a great, it was like one of the best experiences. And 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 I think what's at the heart of this project is really the fact that he is able to see things in a way that I have not seen before. You know, there were so many symbols in the culture that I would just take for granted. And he yeah. would say, what is this? You know, and I would say, well, what do you mean? Don't you see what it is? <laughs> you know? Or there were other situations where we would be photographing the military, for example, and I'd be terrified. I'd be like, don't go that close, you know, don't, don't do that stuff. And just because he was an American with a camera around his neck, people would think that it was okay. He was, it was okay. You know, first of all, Turks really loved Americans at the time. So okay. it was okay. He could do things that I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. um, because he had this camera, not even like a fancy camera. His camera is from like 1967, I think. So <laughs> because he had this professional looking camera, people thought he was the press. He was able to break a lot of norms that I was not comfortable because I was raised with this completely indoctrinated idea of yeah. what you can do and what you cannot do and what the taboos are. That's the project that landed you on the front page of several Turkish newspapers, right? You, okay. you held up a picture of Ataturk. So, okay. So the politics is really complicated. Yes. Um, you know, a couple of days ago, I was listening to this curator from Brazil who was talking about 
racism and racial tension. And, you know, one thing that she was saying, which really resonated with me, is that sometimes in America, we talk about things as if it's true for the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, and, you know, then she started describing racism in, in Brazil and how it's very, very different than racism in the U.S. And yeah. so you can't really translate one situation to another sometimes, and you have to be very careful uh, on how you understand it. So here I am in a country in America where, you know, everybody is respected for practicing their own religion. And part of it is because it is a democracy. Yeah. With or without Trump, it still is a democracy. It was for a while, anyway. <laughs> for a while. So there are a lot of imperfections in America. Yeah. There are a lot of imperfections, but you do see things from a filter of democracy. And so right. I am very happy that I live in a neighborhood where there is a lot of uh, migrants and immigrants uh, from the Middle East uh, that are, you know, fully practicing Muslims, for example, right? Yeah. Well, it's not like that in Turkey. The, the tension is very different in Turkey. And this book is from 20 years ago. So the tension was even um, more intense then. I was wondering how it relates to today or like if you see any, anything happening today in the U.S. that was happening then. I mean, your work is like sort of in the moment, right? You react to things as they're happening. I was, I was wondering if you ever go back and sort of look at these projects and like think about how they relate to now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, during the lockdown, during the quarantine, yeah. they actually interviewed us about the lockdown because it was so similar in some ways, you know, this whole idea of just staying at home and being locked in. But the lockdown for me also related to the military coup of 1980. To me, there is like a really interesting tension between the military and the police. Like as a person who has grown up in Turkey, I trust more the military than I trust the police. And I am intimidated by the military. Yeah. Um, but I do trust the fact that this is the old military. I'm not talking about the current military. But <laughs> the military was always regarded as the educated group. Oh, okay. Whereas the police is really the ones who, uh, they're not well paid. And so there is a lot of bribery and a lot of corruption in the police, right? So when I came to the States, I was kind of interested in how people had uncles and aunts who were in the police force and they thought, you know, that was a really cool, nice thing. I, yeah. I would stay away, <laughs> off, you know, from the police as much as I can. I would be terrified by the police. Whereas the military uh, has a presence and it's kind of scary, but when they walk down the street, this is from my childhood. This is not how I think about it now. So oh, yeah. when the lockdown in Watertown happened, Mike and I had a very different reaction to the military walking down the street. You know, I felt like, well, of course, they're looking for the guy, you know? Yeah. yeah. And Mike, who is really a hippie from the 60s, I mean, he had like <laughs> long hair and he was, uh, you know, in the anti-Vietnam movement. He's like, oh, yeah. how can they do that? This is totally illegal. I said, really? Is it illegal? You know, I mean, <laughs> In my mind, I knew, but some of the things that you learn as a kid is so emotional sometimes in you yeah. that you, you question, like, why should it be illegal? They're looking for this guy who killed a bunch of people, you know. Of course, intellectually, I really understand what is happening and what is wrong. But, um, you know, my childhood Turkish self always comes through moments like that. Like when the SWAT team went by our street, um, the guy who was in the tank looked out to us and yeah. both Mike and I were at the window and he gave us a thumbs up, like kind of asking, is everything okay? Yeah. And Mike gave a thumbs up and I said, what kind of communication is that? How does he know that I am not trapped in the basement and Zarnayev is not hiding in the basement? <laughs> they should really come and look. This is not a good search. You know, they're not, they're not searching. Properly. You wanted less privacy. <laughs> yeah. But, but what's interesting is that they did search the homes that were not single family homes and they did search the immigrant homes. And the irony is, of course, I am an immigrant and they didn't search my home because I live in a single family home. Yeah. And so, you know, what happened is very, very layered and, and um, 
you know, the injustice here, it comes through differently than it comes in Turkey. Right. You know, right. in Turkey, they're violent, but at least they're violent to everybody. <laughs> Equality. <laughs> so also, the difference is that in Turkey, I was a minority. You know, okay. sometimes that's the other thing that's complicated. People look at me and they say, I'm a white woman. I have a French name, so I, I'm European descent. But my entire early part of my life, I was a minority yeah. and generations of my family were oppressed. Um, and so it, it's, it's a very different internalized thing that you have as a family where you always try to stay quiet, do the right thing, you know, yeah. go unnoticed. Uh, so I feel that for different reasons. Yeah. And that definitely relates to now when we're all forced to be stuck inside and and Americans aren't handling it very well. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of things happening in Turkey right now. Um, there weren't that many cases because they went into lockdown. They said 65 and over, you cannot go out in the streets. And people obeyed yeah. because otherwise, you know, the police would be right after you. And people didn't even question it, they obeyed. I'm not saying that's a good thing because that's how oppression starts. No, I'm not but, either, but it was a, it's an interesting uh, flip side to what we hold to be like, as Americans, like we're so like individualism is the, the number one and, and now it's backfiring because individualism means no thought to your neighbor and no community mindedness. And, and that's something that we've lost so much with like social media, the me, me, me type of society right. that we're in right now. Um, right, right. The good of, of the bigger group. Um, right. But also what we have, you know, I'm so grateful I have a house. I'm so grateful I have access to a yard. I'm so grateful I live with great neighbors. You have to recognize what you're grateful for. I think sometimes we take a lot of things for granted. I grew up at a time when my mom would wake up at two in the morning because they had said that our neighborhood would have more water from two to four. And so she would fill up the tub for the rest of the week. That was the water we had, you oh, know? Wow. Yeah. I, I, I was not in a village. Don't get me wrong. I was in the middle of the city in an apartment building, you know, with a full bathroom. But so I think when you grow up that way or automatically I turn off the lights when I leave the room because mm -hmm you know, electricity was a luxury. So when you grow up like that, you, you appreciate things differently, I think. Yeah. Um, Let's transition. You're now the director of the Kingston Gallery in Boston. What's that like? What's it, what's it like <laughs> to be in charge? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, I, I don't see it as being in charge. I see it more as being the secretary. Oh, no. <laughs> um, well, first of all, Kingston Gallery, um, is a community of artists that uh, it's a co-op gallery. So we have all monthly dues to pay. And even though I'm the director, I still pay them. So you don't get a break on anything. Oh man. Yeah. You... <laughs> More responsibility with, with no, no. benefits. <laughs> so it's like working in a huge committee. Oh, cool. We have 30 members or close to 30 members, a little more perhaps. And then there is an executive committee uh, and the chairs of each committee ends up on the executive committee. So I work okay. with the executive committee, but then we have the facilities committee, the budget and finance committee, the membership committee, the oh, exhibition wow. committee. And so we're pretty well organized. And, I, you know, I think what attracted me to Kingston was I applied as you have to apply to be a member. Mm -hmm. And when I applied, it was really because they had a really great gallery space. I fell in love with the space. I thought, um, you know, in SOA, I think we have one of the- SOA is the, the like art district in Boston. Yeah. In Boston, right. I, um, you know, when you have a kid, you will see soon, uh, you will not <laughs> go to Friday night openings because A, right. you'll be really, really tired mm -hmm. and B, because it's happening right when the kid has to eat and go to bed and, you know, so for years, I didn't participate in the art, you know, in, in the art activities in Boston. And now that my daughter is older, I felt like, okay, I'd like to be part of a gallery and I'd like to do more gallery based work. And so I joined the gallery and then I had a good friend, Julie Graham, 
who now passed away, but she was a member of the gallery too. And then there were a few artists that I was familiar with their work and following like Ilana Anderson, Marga Cantor. So I, I knew these artists. And so, you know, I was very happy to join. I don't know if I had exactly a full understanding of what it meant um, to be in a co-op gallery. And it is a lot of work. And I think at the time, my responsibilities at school were lesser. Yeah. And I immediately got engaged in the running of the gallery. And, oh, cool. you know, one member has to be the director. So I became the director and I said, I'll do it for two years. And in December, now my term will be over. Oh, good. And has it been worth it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, um, I've met a lot of really great people. That's one thing. And I know yeah. that's a cliche. People say that. But truly you have to make it work, you know? And so you're learning to work with a lot of different kinds of people and a lot of different kinds of artists. And I think what I really enjoyed it also was that they were artists who were not part of the SNFA. So it gave me a bigger sense of people who are not teaching, but people who are teaching in different schools. And so, you know, yeah. uh, one thing that I'm noticing is that often it's women who are engaged in these co-op galleries. Often it's women who have already raised a family. So uh, this gallery career comes to them a little later in life than say, you know, a young man in their mid twenties or early thirties. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm very proud of being part of this gallery. I think we do good work. I think there's a collective way of brainstorming that's really interesting to me, like when the lockdown was happening. We thought of doing a couple of things and that came from the group. And then when Black Lives Matter was happening, you know, you feel like you're surrounded by really good, solid thinkers and uh, very generous people. And it's That's good to good. be part of a, an artist community. Yeah. 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 Out, outside of your profession at school, you know, of course. That's yeah. also a nice thing because at school, I think the dynamics is different. It's right. more pedagogical. Whereas here, it's not about pedagogy. It's really about, you know, existing almost as a commercial entity because you, you still try to sell and you still try to make some money to pay the rent. But yeah. Um, yeah. What do you have coming up? Do you, I think you said you had a show coming soon. Yes. So as a member, you get a show in the front room every two and a half years. And mine was supposed to be in September, but then oh. COVID happened and everything got delayed. Yeah. And now it's opening the day after the election, November 4th, which oh boy. kind of terrifies me. <laughs> Either everyone will be super celebratory, ready to go, have a great time, or you're not going to get many people in there. <laughs> Either way, I think I'm not going to get many people there because people will be thinking of other things. That's the problem with gallery work. You know, it's, the, it's hard to be spontaneous. I mean, unless yeah. I decide not to do anything and just do a performance in the space, which is not me, you know, that would be way too spontaneous. I, I, I don't think I, yeah. I could pull that off, but I've been designing this show and I've been working on this project for many, many years, actually. Um, it's about the arsenal, the Watertown arsenal, which is literally down the street from me, um, 10 blocks away. I live in Watertown and there was this magnificent complex of buildings uh, that was called the Watertown Arsenal, where they created a lot of bullets and bombs and ammunition and uh, cannons. And oh, cool. they, they even had a nuclear reactor and, um, you know, all <laughs> sorts of interesting experiments that are in one way great because it helped a lot of immigrants moved into the middle class. And in another way, of course, terrifying because yeah. <laughs> what they're creating are these gigantic bombs. I'm also fascinated by the idea that they were making these bullets on a daily basis, like a nine to five job, you would just show up there, but, but also that the idea that there would be a nuclear reactor and bomb making tools in the middle of a city is pretty yeah. <laughs> surreal as well. So there's, and on top of it, the buildings are gorgeous. They're gorgeous oh, buildings. Yeah that the, especially the earlier ones were built by well-known architects in Boston. Uh, the aesthetic is also really beautiful. Um, in where they're relation. making weapons of war, yeah. Right. 
So, you know, there's a lot of layers that I'm interested in this. There is also labor issues. So this is the first place where they tested some of the ideas of Taylorism. And in reaction to that, the workers striked and they closed down uh, for a few days and they rejected productivity or all the tests about productivity. So there's a lot of interesting things that happened at the arsenal. And it's also interesting now because, well, I was first exposed to it because there was a Watertown Children's Theater there that I would drive my daughter to this gorgeous building called the Arsenal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, but now it's going through a major renovation where a lot of real estate developers took different parts of the Arsenal, are developing a mall, a movie theater. Uh, there's already a Home Depot. And um, on the other hand, there's also... Athena Health is taking the other side of the campus. The theater is still there, the children's theater, but also there is a really good ART oh, cool. the, the, and a theater for adults. So it's also interesting to me to see urban renovation. And the way it changes are. going forward, yeah. Right. And, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad in the sense that, okay, we're not making bombs anymore and we have a theater, and which is much better. But there's also a gap and an old Navy and a Home Depot. And the people who are working there, are they making really a better wage than when the people worked at the Arsenal? The Arsenal was a really good employee. Like um, they, they would pay you really well, you would have a pension. And it was really a way for immigrant families to move into the middle class. So there is a lot of contradictions in here. And like in any of my projects, I don't start with a dogma. I, I don't like this idea that I'm going to convince people that one thing is better than the other. I'm much more interested in the complexities. The state of Atta, for example, in Turkey, I was, and Mike too, so we were really interested in the complexity of the situation. You know, what does it yeah. mean to be an Islamist versus a secularist? And where do I fit there? And how about my identity? Or how are these political images being used as propaganda? You know, and, you know, I inherently believe a lot of things are bad. Trump is bad. You know, yeah. But I'm not interested in making work about that. I'm much more interested in making work about the complexity of things. Yeah, um, yeah. And so with the arsenal, yeah, there are clearly bad things and good things. And just the way all that overlays, to me, uh, reveals something about American life and the past and the present. Interesting. That's, that's cool. I hope you're going to... I hope you're <laughs> going to edit some of this thing and take out when I I'm go... I'm not on. editing anything. Chantal. You've been a great guest. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing this, or maybe there is a transcript where I don't have to hear my voice. <laughs> that will be easier. I hope everyone can make it to the Kingston Gallery. When does it open? November 5th. Day what? after the election. Great. Yes, the Wednesday after the election. Oh, good. Okay. And then it's, it's open until um, December 9th. Okay. And that's in SOA in Boston. Yes, 450 Harrison. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Keegan. Nice to see you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Hello, hello, and welcome to the end of the Fine Art Podcast. And the end is great because uh, hopefully you learned something and, and you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, the podcast is fine and it's an art podcast. It's a fine art podcast. And if you like this fine art podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And maybe if you're up for it, rate it five stars. Just throwing that out there. No pressure. And uh, if you don't want to conform and fit into the system, no worries. If you just downloaded this uh, from a bootleg and you're staying off the grid, I get it. So, uh, but if you're not and you're feeling generous today, give us a rating. But don't forget to subscribe. That's really kind of like the, the number one for me. Subscribe. Ratings come later. You know, ratings are like a episode four or five type of a decision i think you know once you're sure about the podcast that you're listening to 
you can give it a rating you know uh but subscribe is like uh yeah hey i'm interested let's listen again let's see what's gonna happen uh thank you so much to chantal for coming on the show i had a great time uh thank you to chantal's bird Sina, because you made this podcast special um i hope you find a nice home and once again thank you listener for listening to this podcast we'll be back next week uh yeah thank you so much i hope to talk to you soon i'm not gonna see you because it's a podcast but i will talk to you soon okay bye